welcome you here today to Stuart Dybeck's reading. Um, I'm Sarah Bynum from the MFA program in writing, um, and one of our wonderful MFA students, um, Nikolai Beopay, is going to be introducing Stuart Dybeck. So thanks so much for coming today. Thank you, Nikolai. Thank you. Okay. So, thank you guys for coming to the New Writing Series, and today, of course, I get to introduce Stuart Dybeck, who has won many awards, but I think the important thing is is that the term genius is in some of those awards, which um, I think is really cool. Recently, actually, um, one of my old classmates from Columbia College Chicago um, emailed me after like four or five years, and I got to tell him, you know, I get to introduce Dybeck on the third he was like, out of all the Southside Chicago writers, George Saunders, um, Sanders Cisneros, McNally, Dybeck is the one that he always went back to. And I wanted to steal that, but I thought Joe should be able to say hi, hi too. Um, we also got to talking when we were introduced to Coast of Chicago in 2002, 2003, specifically that story, Hot Ice. And um, we both agreed that propelled um, our writing into a certain direction. So we're both thankful and indebted um, because of that. Um, there's an interesting thing. Um, in American culture, um, early 1900s, you have waves of immigrants coming um, to the United States, big city, New York, big city, Chicago, and in hopes of you know, seeking wealth, freedom, but in actuality, the opposite happened and um, forced to suffer under mind-boggling aspects of poverty, racism, which they ultimately begin to perpetuate against each other. A lot of the stories that I'm familiar with of Stuart Dybeck seems to be the voice of that second generation, the youth of the first. And instead of wanting to come to the city, they almost want to leave it. But the sad thing is they never get past downtown. Um, even as readers, we don't either. We see the outer city through its refuse, through um, the glowing high-rises of the Gold Coast, through blinking lights over rooftops. So um, it's really cool. And the people who do leave, there's almost a sense of guilt um, for doing so. I learned a lot of cool things I'm reading Dybeck's work. Um, levels of desire that I never thought or knew could be articulated. Um, how the destructiveness and mischievousness um, from individuals who are products of their environment or label misguided, especially misguided youth, how that could actually be beautiful. Um, how um, a bright light in a narrative could actually make a sound sound louder. So some really cool things. You know, we're... Looking over the coast of Chicago in um, our graduate um, writing workshop, and uh, so I asked some students to say what they thought. And Miss Caitlin Salomini, who is so sick she could not be here today, said, "Dybeck's writing is simultaneously searing and tender. For me, both a reflection of the lived world in all its gritty realities and a world in which we wish to live." And I thought that was um, extremely on point. So, without further ado, please welcome Stuart Dybeck. Thanks. It's a real pleasure to be here. I um, read a couple of days ago at Irvine, and then I read yesterday at the Hammer and Museum in uh, L.A., and I've been trying to read something different each day. And um, yesterday what I read at the Hammer, um, then there was a Q&A after. Is there a Q&A after? 
a guy asked me a question about high school. And I had read my high school piece just the day before. I, I always seem to be a day off. I was going to read um, a piece that called Vigil today <clears throat> that begins, It was the Holy Night Vigil, the Gilia, which means in Polish to watch, as the three kings from the Orient watched the rising of the star, as the shepherds gathered in the cold and watched and waited the birth of a babe in a manger, birth from which the world and time would begin anew. And I looked out the door and I, this, this is insane. Why am I reading a Christmas story? And it's like 85 degrees outside, 90 degrees. So I'm not going to read that. So I'm going to watch my, I, I had that one time, I'm going to watch my, I'm going to try to read about a half an hour. Not that this piece is right for 85 degrees either, but at least it's not about Christmas. This is called ice. (laughs) Can imagine? It's about five pages long. They stepped lightly onto the pond as if they were about to walk on water. Its surface was scarred with marks resembling those faintly visible on the daylight moon frosted to the faint blue sky. But the further out they walked, the more flawless the ice became. I think we've gone far enough, she said, gazing down, a mittened hand shading her eyes. Wind, nearly unnoticeable as long as they kept moving, blew her hair. Ice this clear can't be safe. It's thicker than you suppose, he said. Can you feel the pressure of our weight forcing up water? Each step makes the bottom bubble up. You can see the bubbles frothing against the underside of the ice, she said. Let's go back. Those aren't water bubbles, he told her. Then what are they? Last summer, during a wedding in the park, after the bride and groom cut the giant palace of a cake, instead of waltzing, They turned their backs on the orchestra and set sail across the pond in a rowboat. They left all their gifts behind except for a Methuselah of champagne that was supposed to be for toasts. It was propped in the stern, poking up like a lopsided chimney on a transatlantic steamer, and the boat listed beneath its weight. But they'd have made it across the pond if not for a sudden summer storm that blew up and capsized the boat. The bottle... Tottinger, if I remember correctly, I'm never sure how to pronounce it, sunk to the bottom. It must have just now popped its cork in our honor. They walked further out. The pond wind had a skating quality. It slammed against their calves when they stopped again suddenly. Oh, my God, she said. There's a huge dark fish rising from the bottom, a giant catfish or a carp, something too big for this pond. It's just beneath us, opening its enormous maw to swallow us whole once the ice gives way. I can see its grinning grinning row of ivory teeth. Please, we have to turn back now. Don't worry. That's not a monstrous fish. The distortions in the ice make it appear to be. At that wedding last summer, during the storm, when the rowboat capsized, The distraught, drunken guests wheeled a concert grand with its black tuxedo finish from the pavilion down to the pond and launched it to save the bride and groom. 
It floated out but sank before it reached them. It's still submerged, playing Strauss, perhaps. What you thought were teeth are merely its keyboard. They walked out farther still. The wind they hadn't noticed on shore felt round, like the pond resisting their progress, even as it pushed them from behind. If not for the pond, they'd have been, there'd have been no awareness that there even had been, that there even was a shore. I see a candle flame following us, rising from below like that line of poetry from Dr. Zhivago, you are so fond of quoting. I can't recall the words exactly, but I see it flickering just below. You mean it snowed and snowed the whole world over. A candle burned on the table. A candle burned. If memory serves, I recited that to you the evening we met. You said it warmed your heart. Look, the flame has formed a halo around us as if we're standing on a frosted window pane the candle is about to dissolve. But, but that doesn't happen in the poem. Maybe you're thinking of the movie, which I haven't seen. But in the poem, it's the blizzard sculptured on the glass designs of arrows and whirls. A candle burned. I see a drowned girl veiled in white, a wreath of flowers disassembling in her flowing hair, holding a candle. We have to go back. But we're perfectly safe. The ice is four feet thick. He began to jump up and down to make his point, rising higher with each jump as if the ice had the spring of a trampoline and landing harder and harder on his boot heels. Boot heels. Beneath them, the ice began to shudder. Jets of froth obscured the clarity, as if a fuming fissure had opened at the collapsing bottom of the pond. Giant flukes and world flame conflated and meshed in veils of milky froth. A rumble boiled to the thunderous crescendo, the sound of cracks shooting through ice like jagged lightning through a summer storm. She screamed and turned to run. Wait! Wait, don't move, he called after her. She slipped and went down in a graceful, slow motion, then slid back up at hyper speed and kept running. It's a train, he shouted over the roar. Far off on the other side of the pond, beneath a scrim of skeletal trees, the scuffed, silver, salt-stained train arrowed across a metal trestle. It must be some weird echo, he said. Not a Doppler effect, but some phenomena. There's no doubt a scientific name for that we'd recognize if we were as up on acoustical engineering as we are on Russian poetry. She went down again hard, ungracefully this time, crawled back to her feet and kept going. To watch her was like seeing from the perspective of consciousness someone struggling to run in a dream. He caught up to her at the edge of the pond. She stepped onto the bank, and when she turned to look back, her face was streaked with tears. It was the first time he'd ever seen her cry. Her salt tears had pitted the freshwater ice and left a trail. Wasn't it she who told him shortly after they'd met that in every relationship there's always one person who scatters a trail of breadcrumbs for the other to follow? He'd written it down in a notebook in which he kept quotes he wanted to remember from books he'd read. I'm sorry it upset you, he said. 
I thought you might like walking out on the ice. It's so quiet now in winter. The summer buskers and the crowds all gone. The band's instruments hibernating in their cases. Musical shapes like the pavilion muffled in snow. The organ grinder and his neon green monkey migrating south like the songbirds. It's too cold for a spider monkey. Just us walking across a pond as peacefully as if we were walking across the daylight moon. I saw a dead girl holding a candle, staring through the ice, and she looked like me. She looked like me enough to be me, as if the ice was a mirror. Well, she wasn't you. You can't be both dead and alive any more than you can be in two different places at once. I can be in two different places if I am in two different times. But you're here now with me in this time. Who knows for how long. Someday I may be looking back on being in love and which me will be more real. And who said the girl, if there was a girl, was dead? More likely is that she's only sleeping in a cryogenic state of suspended animation. I'll go back and wake her with a kiss. She's under four feet of ice. It's so transparent she'll feel the impression of warmth on her lips. I wouldn't if I were you. She'll break through the ice and pull you under. Nonsense, he said. I'll be back in a jiff. He started out across the pond again, retracing her pitted trail of tears. From a ways out, he turned to smile and wave back at her. But if she was there at all, he could no longer distinguish her from the background of winter. So since Nikolai mentioned um, The Coast of Chicago, and it's the only book I've got, mainly because it's the smallest paper book back and it's easy to carry. I'm going to read uh, another piece that's about one, two, three, four, four pages. Not set in winter. Set at the end of the World Series. Did you guys root for the team farther north? Probably not. The death of the right fielder. After too many balls went out and never came back, we went out to check. It was a long walk. He always played deep. Finally, we saw him from the distance resembling the towel we sometimes threw down for second base. It was hard to tell how long he'd been lying there, sprawled on his face. Had he been playing infield, his presence, or lack of, would of course have been noticed immediately. The infield demands communication, the constant reassuring chatter of team play. But he was remote, clearly an outfielder. The temptation is to say outsider. The infield is for wisecrackers, pepper pots, gum poppers. The outfield is for loners, onlookers, brooders who would rather study clover and swat gnats than holler. People could pretty much be divided between infielders and outfielders. Not that one always has a choice. He didn't necessarily choose right field so much as accept it. 
There were several theories as to what killed him. From the start, the most popular was that he'd been shot, perhaps from a passing car, possibly by that gang calling themselves the Jokers, who played 16-inch softball on the concrete diamond with painted bases in the center of the housing project, or by the Latin lords who didn't play sports, period. Or maybe some pervert with a telescopic sight from a bedroom window, or a mad sniper from a water tower, or a terrorist with a silencer from the expressway overpass, or maybe it was an accident, a stray slug from a robbery or shootout or assassination attempt miles away. No matter who pulled the trigger, it seemed more plausible to ascribe his death to a bullet than to natural causes like, say, a heart attack. Young deaths are never natural. They're all violent. Not that kids don't die of heart attacks, but he, he never seemed the type. Sure, he was quiet, but not the quiet of someone always listening for the heart murmur his family repeatedly warned him about since he was old enough to play. Nor could it have been leukemia. He wasn't a talented enough athlete to die of that. He'd have been playing center, not right, if leukemia was going to get him. The shooting theory was better, even though there wasn't a mark on him. Couldn't it have been, as some argued, a high-powered bullet traveling with such velocity at its whole fuse behind it? Still, not everyone was satisfied. Other theories were formulated. Rumors became legends over the years. He'd had an allergic reaction to a bee sting, been struck by a single bolt of lightning from a freak instantaneous electrical storm, ingested too strong a dose of insecticide from the grass blades he chewed on, sonic waves, radiation, pollution, etc., and a few of us like to think it was simply that chasing a sinking liner, diving to make a shoestring catch, he broke his neck. There was a ball in the webbing of his mitt when we turned him over. His mitt had been pinned under his body and was coated with an almost luminescent gray film. There was the same gray on his black, high-top gym shoes as if he'd been running through lime, and along the bill of his baseball cap, the blue felt one with the Red Sea, which he always denied, stood for Chicago Cubs. He may have been a loner, but he didn't want to be identified with a loser. He lacked a sense of humor for that, lacked the perverse pride that sticking for losers season after season breeds in the love. He's just an ordinary guy, 250 at the plate. We stood above him, not knowing what to do next. By then, the guys from the other outfield positions had trotted over, Someone, shortstop probably, suggested team prayer, but no one could think of a team prayer. So we just stood there silently bowing our heads, pretending to pray while the shadows moved darkly across the outfield grass. After a while, the entire diamond was swallowed and the field lights came on. In the bluish squint of those lights, he didn't look like someone we'd once known. Nothing looked right and we hurriedly scratched the shallow grave, covered him over, and stamped it down as much as possible so that the next right fielder, whoever he'd be, wouldn't trip. It could be just such a juvenile, seemingly trivial stumble that would ruin a great career before it had begun or hamper it years later the way Mantles was hampered by bum knees. One can never be sure the kid beside him isn't another Roberto Clemente. And who can ever know how many potential great ones have gone down in the obscurity of their neighborhoods. And so in the catcher's phrase, we bury the grave rather than contribute to any further tragedy. 
In all likelihood, the next right fielder, whoever he'd be, would be clumsy too. And if there was a mound to trip over, he'd find it and break his neck. And soon right field would get the reputation as haunted, a kind of sandlot Bermuda Triangle inhabited by phantoms calling for ghostly fly balls where no one but the most desperate outcasts already on the verge of suicide would be willing to play. Still, despite our efforts, we couldn't totally disguise it. A fresh grave is stubborn. Its outline remained visible, a scuffed bald spot that might have been confused for an aberrant pitcher's mound except for the bat jammed in the earth with a mitt and blue cap fit over it. Perhaps we didn't want to eradicate it completely. A part of us was resting there. Perhaps we wanted the new right fielder, whoever he'd be, to notice and wonder about who played there before him, realizing he was now the only link between past and future that mattered. A monument, epitaph, flowers wouldn't be necessary. As for us, we walked back, but by then it was too late getting on to supper, getting on to the end of summer vacation, time for other things, college, careers, settling down, raising a family. Past 35, the talk starts about being over the hill, about a graying Phil Necro in his 40s still fanning them with a the knuckler, as if it's some kind of miracle, about Pete Rose still going in headfirst at 40, beating the odds. Maybe the talk is right. One remembers Willie Mays, 42 years old in a Met, dropping that can of corn fly ball in the 73 series. All that grace stripped away and with it the conviction, leaving a man confused and apologetic about the boy in him. It's sad to admit it ends so soon, but everyone knows those are the lucky ones. Most guys are washed up by 17. That's a half hour. So, no? Isn't it? I think it is. So I'm going to, I'm going to read one short. I <laughs> so a lot of you guys are writing fiction. So I'm going to read a, a three-page piece called Fiction. And this is from a, a would-be collection of love stories in the biggest sense of the word um, that I'm still working on. So is ice, by the way. Through a rift in the mist, a moon the shade of water-stained silk. A night to begin, to begin again. Someone whistling a tune impossible to find on a piano. An elusive melody that resides perhaps in the spaces between the keys where there once seemed to be only silence. He wants to tell her a story without telling a story. One in which the silence between words is necessary in order to make audible the faint whistle of her breath as he enters her or rather than a sound or even the absence of sound. The story might at first be no more than a scent, 
a measure of the time spent folded in a cedar drawer that's detectable on a silk camisole. For illumination, other than the moonlight, now momentarily clouded, it slipped by the flicker of an almond candle against the bureau mirror that imprisons light like a jewel does flame. The amber pendant she wears tonight, for instance, a gem he's begun to suspect, has not yet fossilized into form. It's still flowing, undiscernibly, like a bead of clover honey between the cleft of her breasts. Each night it changes shape, one night an ellipse, on another a tear, or a globe, lunette, or gibbous, as if it moves through phases like an amber moon. Each morning it has captured something new, moss, lichen, pine needles. One morning he notices a wasp, no doubt extinct from the time before the invention of language, preserved in such perfect detail it looks dangerous, still able to sting. On another morning the faint hum of a trapped bee, and on another there's the glint of a prehistoric sun along a captured mayfly's wings. Where she grazes down his body and her honey-colored hair and the dangling pendant brush across his skin, he can feel the warmth of sunlight tramped in amber. Or is that simply body heat? The story could have begun with the faint hum of a bee. Is something so arbitrary as a beginning even required? He wants to tell her a story without a beginning. No, rather a story that is a succession of beginnings, a story that goes through phases like a moon, the telling of which requires the proper spacing of a night sky between each phase. Imagine the words strung out across the darkness and the silent spaces between them as the emptiness that binds a snowfall together or turns a hundred starlings rising from a wire into a single flock, or countless stars into a constellation, a story of stars, of starlings, a story of falling snow, of words swept up and bound like whirling leaves, or after the leaves have settled, a story of mist. What chance did words have beside the distraction of her body? He wanted to go where language couldn't take him, wanted to listen to her breath, break speechless from its cage of parentheses, to wordlessly travel her skin like that flush that would spread between her nape and breasts. What was the stretch of that body? What was that stretch of body called? He wanted a narrative that led to all the places where her body was still undiscovered, unclaimed, unnamed. Fiction, which he'd heard defined as the lie that tells a deeper truth was at once too paradoxical and yet not mysterious enough. What was necessary was a simpler kind of lie, one that didn't turn back upon itself and violate the very meaning of lying, a lie without denouement, without epiphany or escape into revelation, a lie that remained elusive, the only lie he needed was the one that would permit them to keep on going as they had. It wasn't the shock of recognition, but the shock of what had become unrecognizable that he now listened for. It wasn't the suspension of disbelief, 
but a suspension of common sense that loving her required. Might unconnected details be enough, arranged and rearranged in any order? A scent of cedar released by body heat from a water-stained camisole. The grain of the hair she'd shaved from her underarms detectable against his lips. The fading mark of a pendant impressed on her skin by the weight of his body. If not a resinous trail left by a bead of amber along her breasts, then it's her sweat that's honey. Another night upon which this might end, might end again, for good this time. Someone out there on the misty street, whistling a melody impossible to recreate. I wanted to tell you a story without telling the story. So that's it. So if there's any questions, I, I'll try to answer them. Can you repeat the questions? Sure. For the, for the yeah. just into there. Yeah. Uh-huh. Um, in Death on the Right Builder, um, there's a reference to it as being a legend. And um, I, I felt, you know, it, it is a legend because it, there's speculation on this person's death and there's speculation on what this person could have been. And I was wondering, when you sat down to write this, did you think, are you going to write a legend? Or did it come out naturally and... Um, what, what is it about cities like this and environments like this that sort of generates legends? Because I feel like... Well, um, that's an interesting question because um, you're, you, the, uh, the question is, when you wrote The Death of the Right Fielder, which is about a legend, did you sit down ahead of time and think, I'm going to write a legend? Do I have that right? And the, um, the, the real answer is I don't remember... <laughs> but the secondary answer is that um, it was a um, it started out as a prose poem and I, I just kept adding to it um, waiting for some kind of a rail that I felt the, the piece could ride and um, for me the, the rail that I found in it was something that um, I always thought about um, when I taught in inner city schools which is that uh, kids from um, these uh, economically disadvantaged neighborhoods have, you, you don't know, you know, um, when they have these high death rates, it, it's like uh, World War I. You don't know how many other Wilfred Owens uh, may have been killed. You don't know how many other great artists uh, d died in that war. And when you have this kind of economic warfare that goes on in a capitalist democracy, uh, a country that at once offers all the phenomenal advantages of democracy, but at the same time pits them against the hard realities of dog-eat-dog -dog capitalism, uh, you, you, you just don't know how many dropouts how many kids who were gunned down in, 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 in um, murders um, could have been something. What, what's that line from uh, 
the Marlon Brando on, I could have been a contender. <laughs> and, uh, and, and the line is uttered to his brother, if you'd have just took and take, take care of me, Charlie, I could have been a contender. Well, you, you know, it's a kind of a line that a kid can say to his society, to his culture. So um, that, that was, I think, where I found the heart of the story. But then, um, probably because of how it had started out in the prose poem, it had already started out with one foot in black humor. And one reason people write black humor is because it helps the writer evade sentimentality and um, tries to make those kinds of platitudinous statements I just made in order to try to explain that story hopefully a little bit fresher. And I, I, I think in terms, did I think all that through? Absolutely not. I, I felt my way through it and, 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 um, and became involved as a writer as trying to make the, invent, the, the story is a catalog of inventions. And uh, for those of you guys who write, and I'm presuming it's most of the people in this room, that, you know, that's just like one of the great, you, you read these how-to books, but one of the great um, techniques that writers have is the catalog. Uh, all, all popular songs, hip-hop, Tin Pan Alley, what have you, are essentially catalogs. You're the top, you're the Coliseum, you're the top, you're the Field Museum. You know, and and the, the, notion, the thing that's wonderful about a catalog is that done properly, it insists on the writer that each invention in it has to top the one before it. And as a writer, you want to be... You, you know, the, it, it seems creative writing classes are about dominating the material. But in many ways, writing is about surrendering to the material, letting the material dominate you. And one thing a catalog does is it keeps saying, invent me better, baby. Okay, you got to number two, you got to go number three. Invent, invent. So, you know, that, that's, that's one of the things that that story's playing with. Uh-huh. I noticed in that first story you read, it, had some, a lot of, it reminded me a lot of Hot Ice. And well, it had ice in it. <laughs> well, it also had a, a woman in trap, you know. Yeah, you're right, of course, you're right. It was also a narrative within a narrative. Yeah, yeah. And I noticed you have maybe, I started thinking, you have a lot of narratives embedded with narr- within narratives in your stories. And I'm just, I guess the question is, to what degree do you find yourself unconsciously or consciously sort of borrowing from your own past or your own past forms or even like images that just keep coming back that you're not even conscious of. So did you guys all hear the question or should I repeat it? It's, 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 you, you've written things with the same imagery and narrative, uh, narrative notions in the past. You borrow from them. Um, you know, and, and the, the, I think the answer that writers would like to give to that question is I, 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 I don't want to repeat myself. And, and the, the question implies that, um, that that's one, one, um, something that a writer can do, and it's usually equated with danger. Um, that is that you get, you're going to get stale and, and the reader is going to start to see all your moves. And, and, and in fact, that, that indeed happens. I mean, it, it happens to great writers, um, which leads us back to the cliche or truism or whatever you want to call it, that every writer has only one story. Um, I'm I'm not 
it, it's not, it's, it's something I'm throwing out. It isn't something I necessarily ascribe to. I think you, you need to go on a writer-by-writer basis about that. But I, I do think that writers have um, certain um, stockpiles of, of images and that they find themselves, as we do in dreams, returning to them frequently. Um, and a lot of writers have written on the subject. I, one of my favorite poems has always been Yeats' Circus Animals Desertion, which I've always, one of the interpretations I've always given that poem is exactly that, that notion, although I think it's probably um, more often read as a poem about waning powers. Um, the um, there's a one of my favorite moments in all of Shakespeare is at the end of the Tempest, when Prospero remains true to his promise and he releases his spirits. And and I you know I I, I always think of that as the as as that notion that. Um, Writers, as they use these images and these kinds of repeated stories, come to think of them as their spirits. Uh, you can really see that in a filmmaker like Fellini, where he goes back to the same sense of images. So I'm, I'm just kind of, I, I really haven't answered your question exactly, but, but I, what, more what I'm doing is kind of conversing with you and saying, you know, I'm in general agreement, but when it comes to actually sitting down and writing the starry eyes, I didn't think about any of that. Um, it, in, in, in a way, the question is more a question to a writer about being a reader of his own work than it is about actually sitting down and, and, and writing more. Um, and part of that is superstition, the, 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 the fear that if you examine your process too closely, you're going you're gonna to make it self-conscious, or you're going to find out things about it that that are going to distract you when you start writing. And, and so even if there's a chance of that, I, I'd, rather, I'd rather stay on the safe side and not do it. You know. I'll also add, whether you find it ingenuous or not, it, 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 after you put so much work in on a story, it, it, it's kind of boring to think about it. You, you, you want to move on and, and, and think about the, the, the next one. So... You know, when Sarah and I drove in today, I mean, mainly we talked about not what we wrote, but stuff we were working on. That was what what interested us, and I, I, I bet you guys are all the same on that. Uh-huh. What am I working on? Yeah. Well, the piece I was going to read about Christmas is from a nonfiction novel called Saint Stuart, uh, which comes from uh, a little anecdote that the whole thing begins with where I, I was in a kid in parochial school and was uh, very religious as a, up to about second or third grade. It appealed enormously to my, my imagination. Um, and I, sometimes people forget all of that stuff about religion, but in a, in a, in a world where sometimes you're uh, imaginatively challenged, you can go into these... Um, Domos and churches and um, places of worship, and see all these legends and stories and everything just assembled. And as a little kid, I mean, it just takes you in, into some uh, magical realm. But they're not calling it magical, they're calling it holy. So um, I was that kind of kid, and, and, and in, in the um, 
every day that would be a saint's day. And if you had the name of the saint, James or Mary or um, whatever, it would be like a second birthday. My name was Stuart. <laughs> and the nun could see that something was bothering me, and she called me up, and I admitted to her that I was feeling kind of left out of the whole <laughs> birthday thing. And she said, don't you understand that it's God's way of letting you be the first? <laughs> so thanks for laughing about that because the, 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 my, my whole desire in writing this is not to write about some huge wound from childhood or anything of the like. I, I just really want to write a funny book. And, I'm, and, um, and the, uh, e- even though the piece of, was about Christmas, I, want it, you know, I hope that it was funny. And I, I, um, I, I read a piece uh, yesterday uh, of one or a half pages of it uh, from uh, a piece called Chop Suey Sandwich uh, about how my father used to make my lunch and he was a Polish immigrant and food would never go to waste in our house. So if we had chop suey in the refrigerator, he would make me chop suey sandwich. And um, I don't know if you've ever had a chop suey sandwich, <laughs> but it's pretty hard to get it to your mouth. <laughs> so. Uh, so that's one thing. And then I'm working on this collection of love stories in, in, the, bro- in, in the broadest sense of the word. And um, a, a, a book of poems set in the Caribbean where I lived for several years. It was two, some of the happiest years of my life. Any another question, maybe? Thanks for asking. Yes? What's the inspiration for your uh, love stories? Um, the inspiration for my love stories. <laughs> That's a question that presumes I have inspiration, of course. <laughs> I don't know, different things. Um, you know, it, it's, um, it's a desire to try to find um, a liter- something you can write uh, in a literary way about. Not a phrase I like, but I can't think of a better one at the moment to replace. But at the same time, that seems to offer the reader a, a handle. That is, um, I find myself as a teacher, as well as a writer, sometimes when I design courses, designing them along the lines of uh, course. I taught a course in Ghost. In, go, in ghost film, and you know, and, and I notice that people always just you know that the courses are always over enrolled. That there's something that appeals to people when you give them this kind of um, I don't know if genre is the right word. So it seemed to me that if I wrote about love stories, that it gave the reader a kind of a handle going in to what kind of book it was. And the reason love stories is because. You can't turn on the radio without listening to that subject. It, it, it's not going to go away. And um, I just thought, well, you know, it's, a, it's about as classical a theme as we have. So um, it, it, the inspiration was thinking about a reader, whether those thoughts were authentic, uh, 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 were, uh, were accurate or not. Um, it, it, it was it, it gave me a, a kind of a reader centered 
way to think about the, the, the book I was trying to write. Any others? Thank you very much.